0: Uh, this is James Sheldon, author of the new book, Before I Forget, directing television, 1948 to 1988. And I'm on On Screen and Beyond.
1: It is time for another edition of On Screen and Beyond. I'm your host, Brian Zimmerack, and this is episode 170 of On Screen and Beyond, the show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week, we have a wonderful guest joining us, James Sheldon. He's a director who started directing back in the golden era of television, he directed Mr. Peepers with Wally Cox and Tony Randall back in the 50s and went on to direct The Twilight Zone, The Fugitive, The Bing Crosby Show, and just on and on and on, right up through the 80s when he did The Equalizer and Sledgehammer and so many other things. It's just just fascinating. He's got some great stories to share with us, and he has just so much to tell us. And he has a book out if you want to hear more, and it's called Before I Forget, Directing Television 1948-1988. to 1988. And he's coming up in just a few minutes. So stick around for that. You don't want to miss this one. And what do you say? We get right into Remake Madness next, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Please up and try again. Remake Madness, well, the remake of A Star is Born that we talked about a while back is moving along. Clint Eastwood is directing, and word is that he's working on convincing Leonardo DiCaprio to star alongside Beyoncé in this one. And the original was made in 1937, and of course there were several remakes after that. And the director of Horrible Bosses has been put at the helm of the remake of War Games, which originally starred Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy. And let's see here. Joel Courtney, one of the young stars of the Super 8 film, which is a great film, I have to tell you that. And uh, he's going to be starring in a remake of the Mark Twain classic Tom Sawyer. That's it for Remake Madness. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, we're going to take a look at what's coming away as far as upcoming movies. Next, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Upcoming movies, well, the Monty Python gang are getting back together for an animated film, including Graham Chapman, who died in 1989. Well, it's through the magic of animation that this is going to happen, of course. And using the audio recorded by Graham back in 1980, they will reunite for one last outing. And Robin Williams will join Robert De Niro, Diane Keaton, Susan Sarandon, and Topher Grace and Katherine Heigl in the wedding, so look out for that one. And Robert De Niro and Sir Weaver will star in Red Lights. It's a thriller about a psychologist and her assistant, whose study of paranormal activity leads them to investigate a world-renowned psychic. That's it for upcoming movies. Next on On Screen and Beyond, we're going to take a peek at sequels down at Sequel City. Next, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Sequel City, well, Tom Hanks says he thinks that there will be a Toy Story 4 in the future, so we'll keep our eye out for that one and see what happens with it. And Warner Brothers is planning a sequel to The Green Lantern, even though the first film isn't doing that well. And it looks like Spy Kids 4 will have a new twist of an old gimmick, Aromascope. That's right. Moviegoers will have a scratch and sniff card to use during the film. At specific points, a number will appear on the screen, and the viewer will scratch and sniff the appropriate number on the card to get the smell of what they're seeing on the screen. And that, that, that to me, sounds like shades of a '50s gimmick era films. But uh, we'll see how that works, and uh, maybe that'll be the new thing. Who knows? That's it for Sequel City. Coming up next on Screen Beyond, we take a look at TV on DVD. <coughs> Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDIC. TV on DVD, well, a four-DVD release of Rescue Me, the complete sixth and final seasons, will be arriving in stores on September 13th. And look for Tracy Ullman's State of the Union, Season 3, as it comes to DVD on July 19th, and Hawaii Five-O, the original, uh, the 11th season will be coming to dvd on september 20th that's it for tv on dvd coming up next on on screen and beyond movies coming your way on dvd movies on dvd coldance escape of the Birdmen* with doug mcclure tom scarrett and Richard Basehart and Chuck Connors comes to DVD on July 26th. If you want to check out a review on that, just go to onscreenbeyond.com and check out our DVD movie reviews. And on July 5th, you can catch Hobo with a Shotgun with Rutger Howard in this gory, gory, gory thriller. And also on July 5th, you can check out the Sci-Fi Channel's original film on DVD, Ferocious Planet. That's it for movies on DVD. Coming up next on On Screen Beyond we have our interview with director James Sheldon. Now, James, has, he's done an incredible amount of directing of classic TV shows and everything else in between The Twilight Zone, Bing Crosby Show, uh, Batman, uh, The Virginian, and, and just so many more. And, and it's just, you got to hear the things that he's done. I mean, we don't even have enough time to tell you all the things that he's done. But uh, he's got a book out, and it's called Before I Forget directing television from 1948 to 1988 and you can get it at uh, all the internet and and bookstores and everything else you can get them you know just check it out because it's a fantastic book james sheldon coming up next right here on on screen and beyond My guest today on On Screen and Beyond has been a director on TV since the golden age of television. He has directed numerous classic shows including Mr. Peepers and The Twilight Zone, My Three Sons, Batman, MASH, The Waltons, and on and on, just too many to mention. He has directed everyone from James Dean and Dustin Hoffman to Marlon Brando and Paul Newman. He has a book out called Before I Forget, It's James Sheldon. James, it's a pleasure to have you on On Screen and Beyond.
0: Thank you very much. And I have directed all those people except Marlon. Uh, I I knew Marlon because he roomed with Wally Cox. Ah. But I never actually worked with him. But Ah. we were uh, friends, too, because his teacher, Stella Adler, was a close friend of mine.
1: Okay, okay. See, what, I, I was doing research, and I found that, and it said you had worked with him. So you can't always believe what you see on the Internet. <laughs> I
0: don't know where you saw that, but, you know, I certainly was a fan of his. <clears> hmm.
1: <throat> yeah, well, it, it's it's just amazing looking at all the TV shows and the people that you have worked with. Uh, it, it is unbelievable.
0: <laughs> well, uh, thank you. Most of them were not, you know, stars when I first worked with them. Right. I, I think I gave... Uh, Clint Eastwood, one of his first jobs, and uh, certainly Jimmy Dean. uh, And uh, I I, I remember Dustin Hoffman in a four-line part where he was playing a little gangster on Naked City. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of the people, Gene Hackman, Carol O'Connor, they've all become quite famous, but when I work with them, Uh, They were happy they get a part of a television show.
1: Right. (laughs) As far as the book, what made you decide to do the book in the first place?
0: Well, I tell you, I was invited by uh, someone I was working with. I was doing dramatic reviews for a new Internet internet site about over 15 years ago. Uh, It was uh, called, uh, called Entertainment Drive. Mm-hmm. and it was the first of the entertainment internet sites in fact they you were allowed a certain number of visits then you had to pay more uh, and uh, Michael polanos um, who started the thing made quite a bit of money on the thing but when the internet started spreading uh, he uh, sold the business to uh, a couple of actresses that never did anything with it, but so many similar ones started up. And uh, so one of the people who worked there uh, was a woman named Elaine Spooner. She's now at Warner Brothers in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. But I uh, got to know her a bit as I did the other people that worked on this early website. And one of the things she would... uh, on was a board of directors of a creative conference in Portland, Oregon. And the Portland, Oregon conference invited me out a few years later to be a guest on their weekend program, which they had a theater full of students. And, um, they had other Hollywood people. There was, you know, a producer, an art director, a composer and an actor uh, and and so forth. So when I got up to speak uh, and I showed them little clips from several shows that I had directed uh, somebody in the audience said this is fascinating why don't you write a book? And my reply to him was uh, well I'm so used to working for money I don't know that I really can do a book. (laughs) But it Stuck in my mind. Yeah, and I started, and eventually, uh, you know, I'm more or less finished. It. You can always make it better. And I had a lot of pictures that I had collected over the years since I was a page boy at NBC in, you know, the early 40s. And somehow, I just put it all together, and I asked a friend of mine who I had helped. Uh, he would to a- series of books on different television shows, and he had called me about Route 66 and asked me questions. I had done quite a few of them. Mm-hmm. This is in the 60s. And uh, I had pictures of me with George Maharas, uh, Marty Miller, the stars of the show, in different cities. But Route 66, never filmed in California or New York. It was all over the country.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And he asked me if I had any pictures and I gave him some. And then he did a book on Naked City, which was another show of the period by the same great producer. And uh, Naked City was filmed entirely in New York. And I had some pictures from that. And he did another book on Naked City, and he sold these paperbacks. And sometime later, um, he he, uh, said, how's your book coming? And I said, well, I've pretty much finished it, but I don't know how to sell it. And he said, let me talk to my publisher. And he sent a copy of my manuscript to uh, this uh, publisher. And he, uh, like two days later, gave me a phone call. It was Christmas Day, I remember, saying he'd like to publish it. Mm. So it was published uh, recently. uh, And... uh, the reaction to it has been surprisingly good i never really considered myself a writer people tell me uh friends yes but also other people how well written it is
1: i'm surprised yeah i've seen reviews and everything and people are really uh, saying how great it is you have such a big history that that it's it's just well
0: i think the pictures help a lot too and i you know now i think gee, i should have used more pictures but <laughs> there are you know over 50 i think
1: wow jeez yeah. So you were, uh, uh, you took a lot of snapshots when you were directing.
0: Well, or I collected. Not necessarily. I took snapshots. No.
1: Uh-oh.
0: I ever did. But you know, there are publicity photos that people take. Yeah. Yeah. The show, and I always say to the photographer, "I'd love a copy."
1: Ah, I and see.
0: And then I put them in a box, you know. Yeah. And that goes back, you know, to the early years. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot I wish I had gotten.
1: Really? Yeah. I'm sure. Geez
0: i never had a picture of me with jimmy uh, james dean
1: james dean uh i
0: never had uh you know there are quite a few quote stars unquote that i work with that i
1: should have had pictures taken but uh, i did not yeah geez i know the, the 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 people you meet and the people you talk with and, and work with you wish you had hit you know well, gotten yeah. those pictures
0: and also you get embarrassed to ask, you know, have your picture taken with someone it's these were all publicity photos that somebody took. Yep. Because they were publicizing whatever show it was.
1: Yeah. What made you decide to become a director?
0: Well, let's see. Um, when I was 14, my father took me to the Metropolitan Opera House in New York, the old Opera House, and. On stage was a five-hour Wagner opera de Valkyrie, and it had the two great uh, performers uh, of the century, uh, Larry Smelkior and Kirsten Flakstad. Now, you know, this is uh, 1935 or so, and uh I just was so enthralled with the theatricality of the old Metropolitan Opera House and the Gold Curtain and the, the, you know, the whole thing. Well I knew I couldn't sing, so I couldn't be an opera singer, and I wasn't too good on the piano, though I had been having lessons, and um, I don't know, I just decided that maybe I'll be a director. And when I went away to college, which I purposely went to because I heard about the drama department, um, that's what I concentrated on, even though it was not what I majored in. And I did do some plays uh, at uh, the University of North Carolina. Uh, You know, I wasn't a very good actor, but I was in some, and I just watched what directors did. And then I directed a... Radio play that I wrote for my thesis. And uh, when I got out of school, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to get into uh, uh, the theater or radio. Television hadn't started yet. And uh, I applied to both. I was offered a job at a theatrical agency one of the best agents. I mean, she later handled Tennessee Williams and all sorts of things. Wow. Audrey Wood and her husband, Bill Liebling. But they didn't offer me any money. They were doing, you know, hey, you want to work in the theater? Come and help us. At the same time, uh, I got a job. I got an offer from NBC, National Broadcasting Company, who had these great studios in Rockefeller Center, and it was as a page boy uh, at $65 a month. Well, $65 a month, seemed better than nothing. <laughs> and uh, that included a uniform, and so I became a page boy. Mm-hmm. And that's where I started working and doing, you know, t- uh, re- in radio studios, bringing messages, uh, bringing messages to actors. Uh, 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 my first assignment was uh, standing at the back door of Studio 8-H to keep people out while Arturo Toscanini rehearsed the NBC Symphony Orchestra mm-hmm. it was a great orchestra composed of musicians from Europe who had escaped Hitler wow. so they had really a great sound yeah. and uh, you know, I was just thrilled to be there and uh, I uh, would like to be an usher at uh, broadcasts of radio shows uh, and uh, here I am Jeez. <laughs> so uh, after I was a page boy I became a guide which took tours around and on the tours they talked about television because NBC uh, RCA David Sarnoff and those people had gotten a license broadcast television in February 1941. And they had just sort of started with this with certain local stations. And you had to keep something on the air. It was usually baseball games. This was a very limited audience Mm -hmm. of people who could afford the expensive television sets that first came out. And there was no cable, no network. Right. And uh, so uh, when the war came... Uh, they stopped all of that and concentrated on the war effort. And uh, I tried to get in the Navy. I have a bad back, had a bad back then, and the Navy rejected me. And then when I was drafted a couple of years later, I got through the whole physical until the back examination, and I was even foref by the Army. So I got the chance of working at NBC, all during this time. Then, uh, being a guide led to being in charge of the guides, and then I got into the uh, uh, international division where I was broadcasting and disc jockeying to servicemen overseas. There were different departments in NBC International, Spanish, French, for all of the overseas broadcasts. This was during... World War Two, and uh, so I became a uh, you know a disc jockey announcer and did the news for the servicemen overseas, and I was still under the you know working for NBC when the OWI, the Office of War Information, took over uh, the uh, foreign broadcasts. So they transferred me to the press department. So for. Many months I was working on publicity for the different shows that NBC had. And about that time, one of the guys that had worked I knew through the studios uh, had been an assistant director, and he got a job as a director at CBS, and he told me about it. So I went to see his boss, who uh, a wonderful guy named Ray Knight. He was had been a comedian. And uh, his secretary said, when I said what I wanted to see Mr. Knight about, she said, uh, you know, there were many people ahead of me. And uh, this is a little risque, but uh, it's true. Uh, she said, I said, well, what do I have to do to get this job? And she said, well, you could come home with me tonight. <laughs> I got the
1: job. <laughs> <laughs> so so you really worked your way up then.
0: I, I wouldn't call that work. Well... <laughs> yes, I did.
1: Mean, yes. but, but I mean the early part. <laughs>
0: I was directing... Uh, uh, I was an assistant director about, nine, you know, maybe 1944. And I uh, worked on different shows. Uh, you know, Time did it, and I was the network representative... Because in those days, all the big shows were controlled by the advertising agency.
1: Right, yeah. The
0: sponsor. And it stayed that way until the mid-60s. And uh, so I worked on a show which was sponsored by the Saturday Evening Post. And I was was the assistant director. And one day, the director, who was also the producer and the contact with Curtis Publishing Company said to me that he had to go to Philadelphia to see the client would I like to direct the show Mm -hmm. and it was a wonderful cast, kind of a repertory cast of the best radio actors around and uh, the first script that I did was called Too Young to Know it was a current story by Harlan Ware in the Saturday Evening Post so I was a director But I went back to being an assistant director. Mm -hmm. Well, as fate would have it, uh, the Curtis Publishing Company decided to change advertising agencies. And the agency that had had it had only a branch in New York. The main office was in Chicago. But the producer town executive went with the show to BBDNO, the other advertising agency, and McFarland Aveyard, because I knew the setup, ad, offered me the job as head of the radio department, which consisted of one half hour show, a news broadcast from Chicago. And I was, you know, happy to move up, uh, and the money was a lot better. Mm-hmm. not as much as one would get later on. But uh, I w- went along and I thought, gee, I would rather do a dramatic show, work with actors. So I worked with some writers and we got a show together and sold it to the client who was just sponsoring the new show. It was the National Board of Fire Underwriters, a fire insurance company. Mm-hmm. And we did this r- show based on famous fires all crimes of carelessness and I uh, it was on the mutual network and I directed this uh, every week for six months so I got a chance to hire actors and I had admired and so
1: forth Yeah,
0: I was very happy but then all of a sudden uh, the National Board of Underwriters decided not to spend their money on radio and uh, I was I didn't have a job McFarland Navy, closed their New York office. But at WR, where I had been working on this show, some people noticed me and offered me a job. Uh, One of them was Rodney Erickson, my immediate boss, who was a delightful guy, and uh, there were, you know, several people at the Mutual Network, and my job was not directing. It was like being the... uh, supervisor of these daytime shows, which were very popular. And that's what I did for a year. And I, you know, (laughs) if anything went wrong, if there was any problem, I would be the one who got the fan mail, and then I would be the one who straightened things out. It Mm -hmm. was kind of a public relations job. Uh, One of the programs that we had every morning was Dorothy Kilgallen, the newspaper columnist, and her husband, Richard Colmer, who'd been an actor and a producer in the theater, uh, had uh, like a breakfast show every morning. And I got the mail, uh, the fan mail, you know, and I would always go through all the fan mail to see if there was anything unpleasant or negative or crazy about it before I'd forward it on to the performers. And one day, I got a letter uh, uh, that was being very critical of uh, Dorothy and Dick and fighting their children on the show and made some nasty remarks. Uh, uh, and I you know, put the letter away because I certainly was going to send it to them. But I got a call from the president of W.R. saying, why did you send that letter to Dorothy? And I said, I didn't send that letter to Dorothy. He said, she won't go on tomorrow morning unless I fire you. So I said, I don't know what she's talking about. He said, why don't you call her and try and straighten it out? Well, Dorothy's phone calls were answered by her sister, Eleanor, who later became a very, very uh, successful talent agent. And I told Eleanor the story, and she said, well, just a minute. She said, let me look in the wastebasket. And, of course, there was a carbon copy of the letter that had been sent to me, sent to Dorothy with some nasty scribblings at the margin. Thinking that I wrote those scribblings, like when they were criticizing the children, I said, why don't you do something about this? Well, I didn't, of course. Uh Anyhow, the next day, I didn't get fired because she went to the wastebasket and found the copy, the same letter. And the next day, um, I got a box, a huge box from the florist, of a tree branch wired with a thousand olives. And the card said, I believe the name of the song is What Can I Say, Dear, After I Say I'm Sorry? It's Dorothy. And for years after that, in her column in the papers, She always ventured, I went to this, I went to that. It was, uh, you know, really, uh, she was embarrassed about that, and she couldn't have been nicer to me. Yeah. (laughs) I stayed at W.R. uh, doing that kind of work for about a year, and my immediate supervisor, Robbie Erickson, got hired, uh, got offered a job by... The big advertising agency Young Rubicam on the Gulf Oil account they had a show that had been on for years called We the People mm-hmm. which was kind of like what 60 Minutes is today except one MC and we did it in front of the studio audience uh, and so they could have Gulf dealers from all over the country come and see the show when they were in New York and it was broadcast from uh, the Maxine Elliott Theater which no longer exists which was on 39th Street just a block from the Old Metropolitan Opera House so I loved being in that neighborhood I loved being part of the thing and it was just a radio show where people held scripts but we had an audience uh, at at the final broadcast well a few weeks later uh, June 1st NBC, uh, CBS uh, and the client, Gulf Oil, through the Young Rubicom Agency, decided to make a simulcast. Television after the war began slowly, and there weren't really any big connections with the West by cable yet. And uh, so, We the People was radio across the country, but it was a simulcast to see what it would be like on television uh, in the area that could get television. And there weren't too many sets in use because they were very expensive. And, you know, people didn't have them. Well, the opening night, uh, on June 1st, we televised the radio show, but I had to do a lot of things instead of just doing people standing at a microphone. We had little sets and we had costumes, and we had makeup and uh, it was visual as visual as you could get mm-hmm. in those days with this kind of a show
1: yeah
0: and we also had you know not only the human interest stories from all over the country or the world, but we also had uh entertainment stars. Or uh, people from show business like Richard Rogers, composer, or
1: mm-hmm, yeah.
0: Lowry Smilky, or opera star. I was so happy to work with him. And uh, so I became a. I staged the show, but I didn't know anything about cameras. But CBS assigned a camera director. And Ralph Levy, who was the camera director, and later on went to. Did, Jack Benny and Burns and Allen Mm -hmm. uh, on television the same week he did both shows every week but at this point he was just on staff at CBS and he knew about cameras well he couldn't wait to get off of with the people so he taught me everything I needed to know with the cameras of the day and gradually, uh, eventually, I took over directing uh, both the video and the audio. And I was on that show for two and a half years. Uh, I liked, I enjoyed it. Um, I learned a lot. I met an awful lot of you know, people who were on the show. And the agency, uh, Young Rubicon was very impressed with how cool and calm I was. And I just uh, you know uh, nobody knew anything, so whatever we did was experimentation. Oh yeah. And we got to work with a lot of famous people, you know.
1: And, yeah.
0: Like uh, I talk about it in my book, uh, uh, Billy Holiday, who was you know the great singer.
1: Oh yeah. We're doing this story on
0: her giving giving up drugs that she had been addicted to, and on the same show we had a Charles Boyer who was a major movie star.
1: Right. When yes.
0: television started, the Hollywood studios were fighting it and they would not let any of their contract players appear on television. Mm-hmm. But Boyer I think didn't have a that kind of a contract as other actors like Clint Ford, uh, that were guests on the show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we would tell a human nature story of I mean Boyer was on talking about French uh, holiday not Bastille Day, but another Fred Freedom Day. Yeah. And uh, Billie Holiday he was on for the drug story, and uh, she, of course, sang a song. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I tell in my book, uh, the dress, the uh, run-through in the afternoon before the broadcast went splendidly. She sang beautifully, we had a. She was appearing at the theater up. Uh, The uh, uh, theater uptown in New York and uh, she was excused from the dress rehearsal but she would be back in time for the broadcast and uh, so we went on, we had our dress rehearsal and uh, somebody read her part well she came back to the studio about quarter to nine before the nine o'clock start and I, by that time, was already in the control room, which was in the back of the theater. Mm-hmm. When the stage manager uh, said that Billy was back, so I went to see her. And because the run-through dress rehearsal rather was a little long, we made some cuts in everybody's scene. Uh, you know, uh, the way they they broadcast, they didn't hold scripts. We had. I don't know that we created it, but it was new at the time. Uh, we had cue cards, which were held by off-stage assistants. Mm-hmm. And they could read the cue card, and it looked like they were talking to the person opposite them.
1: Right, yeah.
0: And uh, so I went to tell Billy about the uh, changes, and she was a little far gone said, I'm going on if there are any changes. So I said, well, we'll put them back. So I told the cue card people and I was thinking, how will I get off the air on time? (laughs) Uh, I'd never get in the last commercial. I'll never work again. But I went back to the control room to talk to my producer when the stage manager on the the, uh, intercom said, She's walked out the stage door. So my producer rushed out, went out after her. Well, she was programmed. We had an opening act, and then we had Billie Holiday and her number, and then we had a commercial. So the stage was big enough to set up for three small sets, including the gas station for No Foil. The first act happened to be a guy who couldn't read. It was a, some hillbilly, and he ended up playing the musical saw. Mm-hmm. So I get word uh, that Billy is not going to is run out. So I thought, well, I guess we've had a stretch, and I told the stage manager to strike the Billy Holiday set and we go to the commercial next. And uh, the man who played the musical soul was being interviewed, and uh, the, the MC at the time was Dwight Wiest. And <laughs> he uh, kept asking questions and stretching, and the guy was talking more than he had in rehearsal. And I got word Billy was back. So I, I don't know how I thought so quickly, because I really didn't have any experience, but I said, we'll put her on next to closing. Well, closing was Chalboyer, but we had the other things set up on the stage, and it was just in order. Mm -hmm. So, even though it's not very good programming to put two entertaining stories together, uh, back to back, uh, we went on. After the, the man started to play the Saw, I heard she was coming back, so boom, I cued the applause, and he never got to play his number. He just played a little bit. Uh. And we went into the commercial, and then eventually we got to Billy. And Mm -hmm. she was very good, but she wasn't as great as she'd been at the root run through. Following her, I was long, and I thought I'd never work again. Boye, not following the script, watched the clock. And got me off the air on time. Oh. (laughs) No one ever knew anything was wrong in the audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went out to thank him, and he he said, Oh, it was such good professional behavior on her part. I think I had to save the day. Wow. So I really admired Charles Boyer for the rest of his career. Yeah. And that was, uh, but you know, nobody talked about it. Nobody gossiped about it. You never read that in the paper about Billy because everybody loved her. She's such a great singer.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, so that, that's a true story.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Anyhow, We the People wasn't always so hectic, and I stayed on the show for about two and a half years. Wow. And I was only off it because Young Rubicum had a, several other clients, and Packard Motor Car and Cluett Peabody's shirts alternated with a musical just for television of a program called Holiday Hotel. Now Holiday Hotel had started with Edward Everett Horton, the great comedian in, in pictures, done all those Rogers and stamp pictures. He was always the comic foil this sort of blustery man. And it, apparently the show wasn't very popular. And they decided, the clients agency, you know, like, I don't know, to get down Amici, who had just been uh, released from his 20th Century Fox contract. And Amici had been a big star in films. He was Alexander Graham Bell. He was always with Alice Faye or Joe Power and so mm-hmm. on. So he was a good name, particularly in 1950. Yeah. And uh, so I went on to do... Uh, oh, so... With the change in the star, they also changed directors, and I was on staff at Young and Rubicum, where the directors used to work for the advertising agencies. And the guy who was doing uh, the Holiday Hotel show got transferred to do We the People, and I went on the Holiday Hotel, which I was delighted because it was a change after all that time. Yeah, and we I enjoyed the show. We had singers, dancers. Uh, just a studio with no audience, and it was, uh, you could do camera shots, and uh, the set designer was terrific, and we had uh, Bernie Green and his orchestra, and we had a chorus, and I really enjoyed the, you know, it was like a little musical comedy, a half hour every week, and, mm-hmm. and we had different sort of uh, stars at the time, Mary Boland, who was wonderful uh, comedian and uh, Kitty Carlisle who was really more of a Broadway star but right. she did a couple of movies with Bing Crosby in the 30s
1: yeah and what's my line
0: <laughs> oh well that was
1: later. Or, no to tell the truth wasn't it
0: that was uh, later yeah
1: yeah later on yeah but,
0: uh, Kitty was uh, in uh, two pictures with Crosby in the 30s and uh, she also did uh, one night a night at the opera with the Marx Brothers Mm, she played okay. opposite Alan Jones. Yeah. So uh, anyhow, there I was doing a musical comedy, still working at Young Urbukum, and uh, that went on until uh, summer vacation. And in those days, in the summer, the, you know, they didn't have any tape or any rebroadcast facilities. So, in this, there was a kinescope, you could do a copy of it, but the quality was very thin. Yeah. So, 13 weeks off, um, I decided to take a vacation, and I would come back in the fall for the show. And I had just gotten married, and we wanted to go tour Europe, for, which we did for three months. And uh, then I came back, and I went back to Holiday Hotel. And uh, about that time, uh, I think Holiday Hotel went off the air. I mean, they decided to do something else. Uh, Packard motor cars included Peabody. So uh, I was uh, assigned to just supervise the commercials because by that time in the 50s, they were starting to make commercials especially, just the commercials, instead of being part of the show. Mm -hmm. Not entirely, but they would buy packages, like a very well-known show at the time was Mama based on the play I Remember Mama.
1: Right, yes.
0: And the book that it came from. And um, uh, so I would be the supervisor another show that I supervised for Philco, was a uh, very well-known dramatic show called Philco Playhouse. And I think I I worked on the Goodyear part of it. It was Philco Goodyear Playhouse, which was one of the first great dramatic shows on NBC produced by a really creative guy named Fred Coe, who started not copying things, uh, you know, doing books and stuff, but original scripts. Anyhow, getting back to uh, being a supervisor, and at that time, um, I used to love to go to the theater and keep in touch with the theater people, and there was a a show that was opening that I wanted to see, and to get the ticket, um, I, I called the Louis Shaw office, my contact there, and... She said, gosh, Jim, they were all sold out for the opening. But our switchboard operator's husband doesn't want to go, and if you'd like to go with her, Jane Dacey, later started her own agency. And one of her clients uh, was Gower Champion, got Marge and Gower Champion. And she had mostly musical people. And we were still friends. And... Uh, one day, my friend Ralph Levy, who had uh, was the first television director who did the camera work on the first We the People, had been transferred by CBS to California, and he was doing Jack Benny and Burns and Allen and so forth. And he called me, and he said, there's a young actor coming to New York that's a friend of a friend, and I asked him to call you, and if you could do anything to help him, I would appreciate it. So this boy comes into my office named James Dean, and I thought, gee, it's nice quality. And he, uh, I asked him to read a scene that I had on my desk, because on Mama, which was one of the shows when I bought, the young son, Nils, played by Dick Van Patten. Yes,
1: Dick's been a guest, yep. Uh,
0: Dick, was going in the Army. He was drafted. Mm-hmm. So they were looking for a new Nils. So I called uh, the casting director, Doris Quinlan, and I said, I'd like I, I found somebody I think you'd like to hear. And I sent Jimmy to her and of course he got the part. But Dick was for F in the army and didn't go in the army and Jimmy didn't have the part.
1: <laughs>
0: so he kinda hung around a lot, you know, and I tried to Uh, introduce him to other directors and people who were working on shows at the time because I was just doing the supervision Mm -hmm. and one of the shows that I was supervising as I said was the Phil Cochrane Playhouse and so I got to know Fred Coe and Elbert Mann who was directing one of the two directors they had and one day I was sitting in the control room to supervise the commercial when Fred uh, and Delbert were talking about their 13th week because Delbert and Gordon Duff alternated directing the show uh, every week every other week and uh, they were thinking w- we got to find a director for the 13th week and I said how about me mm-hmm. <laughs> well uh I think because I worked for the advertising agency, their sponsor, uh, they could take a chance. And uh, they did. And the first dramatic show that I did for them on Philco Live was uh, a story of Louis Braille, the man who invented the Braille system. The,
1: mm-hmm, the, yep.
0: blind, the, the, reading, the way blind people read with their fingers. Yep. And it was a period piece. and. The wonderful French actor, who at that time was still a pretty big star, having done Lily with Leslie Caron in a lot of war films, uh, Jean-Pierre Mont played Louis Braille, and uh, the show, I was, you know, very happy working with actors and uh, all of that. Well, after the run-through, we were a little long, and Fred suggested we cut this scene, I said, fine, it won't hurt the story, told the cast. But the cameras in those days were all attached to the wall by cable, and so when you planned your shots, you had to be sure that they could move here or there without running into a cable. And by cutting that scene at the last minute, I couldn't get the camera around, uh, the cameraman couldn't get around, to do jean Pierre's close-up when he came out on a little balcony and being a blind man he, there was no way he could move he just felt his way to one place. right yeah well I couldn't get the close-up I had a wide shot but I could not get the close-up and I thought I would never work again and I remember Fred saying to me afterwards when I was so apologetic he said uh, don't you have any confidence in yourself and that stuck with me. Well, nobody noticed it. The show went very well. The only person who noticed it was Jean-Pierre, who didn't get as close. Right. <laughs> but we became very good friends for years and years afterwards. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, that was my first dramatic show. Yeah. And I was still working at Young Ruka because it was a good year show. And about that time, the advertising agencies realized that television was growing and uh, if they had to pay staff directors it would be much more uh, economical to hire freelance directors and uh, not have to pay them all of the staff stuff so uh, about that time Fred Coe who I had directed that Jean-Pierre Armand show I, we also were talking in the control room about a new comic that he had seen at the Village Vanguard Nightclub in Greenwich Village. And I had seen him, and he, uh, I heard him talk about it. I said, isn't he great? I just had such a good time with him. And Fred said to me, you know, I want to do a pilot with him. Would you like to direct it? So I said, of course. All right. <laughs> well, in order to direct the pilot of Mr. Pieper's, NBC, I had to leave Young Rubicon. And seeing the handwriting on the wall for directors, I said, I'll try. So I got to the pilot of Mr. Peeper's.
1: Wow.
0: It didn't sell immediately. And I started getting a, a freelance assignment from one of the agents I knew on a show that was he handled Robert Montgomery, who had been a major movie star and was also Elizabeth's father. Elizabeth had just had just about starting her career. Mm-hmm. And uh, I directed a summer uh, budgeted uh, live Robert Montgomery presents, uh, James Daly and Barbara Britton were the stars. And it it worked, so I had made that you know, uh, uh, Contact. And then Mr. Peepers sold for the summer for the Ford Motor Company.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I directed Mr. Peepers in the summer and it became a huge hit. Oh, yeah. yeah. But then it went off the air because it had only been on in that time spot for Ford for the summer. Well, Wally Cox's agent, a wonderful lady named Gloria Sapphire, said to me thank you so much for all your help with Wally and I, she, I said is there anything I can do for you I said well you could get me a job <laughs> where do you want to work and at that time more dramatic shows were being done in the studio uh, at uh, CBS and I said CBS the next week I was in the head of directors uh, producer from Hollywood named Bill Dozier who was working CBS New York yeah, and I was hired as a director and that's how I started with CBS hmm. and then I was under contract and then Mr. Peepers was picked up and ran for several years yeah. one of the things that is a little name dropping that I did on Mr. Peepers uh, there was a part of a, a, a history teacher just about five lines and I was out at the beach on Fire Island where my wife and I had a little house and next door to us was a friend of my cousin Gertrude who worked in the garment business named Florence Randall who was married to this actor who never worked and uh, so I, I knew them slightly and I used to see you know Tony on the beach and so forth and uh, one day, uh, one weekend, I, we invited Wally Cox out for the weekend. And Wally was an odd guy, a very unique comic. And I, on the beach, he had a, found a tree branch, uh, and he, there were some dead seagulls, and he was poking their eyes. <laughs> and a when, when uh, few weeks later, when I was doing uh, my homework lying on the beach, there was this five-line part for a history professor and uh, because the, the show, Mr. Peepers, took place in the school, Mr. Peepers. Right, yeah. And um, I saw Tony Randall walking along the beach poking the eyes of birds and I thought he and Wally would get along fine. <laughs> so I called Fred Coe, the producer, and I told him I'd like to use this actor and he said fine. So, Tony and Wally, and on that particular show, it was a live show, there was no tape or any film yet, um, we came from a part of the center theater which used to be next, uh, very near the Radio City Music Hall, it was part of Radio City, a wonderful theater, but very big. But we, we had broadcast space and we staged our shows there and we had an audience. Well, on Monday, rehearsing in this plain uh, hotel room where we rehearsed, um, Tony and Wally got along very well. The writer, David Swift, was so delighted with Tony in this little part that he expanded it. And by Friday, when we went on the air, it was about five pages, (laughs) five lines. And the rest is history because Tony... Became very successful on We the, on, uh, Mr. Peeper. Right, yeah. And on to become a big movie star yeah. for so many years. Well, and every time in the future that I would run into him, he would introduce me to somebody say, This is the guy I've got my career started.
1: <laughs>
0: Not everybody uh, that you work with would do that.
1: Right, yeah. yeah. I was very impressed. Well, James, you worked quite a bit on the Bing Crosby show in the mid '60s. Well, that was the mid
0: '60s. Uh, yeah, I, I did all of them. Uh, Bing had a, you know, he was um, a major movie star, box office number one for years and years. Oh yeah, basically uh, uh, at, at Paramount. And then he did the radio shows, the big musicals, and then he did television shows, musicals. But they decided to do a sitcom with Bing, or he decided he would. And so I was hired to direct the show. I I was hired to do six, but Bing and I got along extremely well, and uh, I did uh, 28 of them. Wow. It was a kind of a sitcom, but every week he did at least one number, was sang one song.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah, geez. Was was he a nice guy?
0: Uh, well, with me, I just loved him. Yeah. When I left, I mean, when the show was canceled, he wrote me the nicest, praiseworthy letter, uh, which is in my book, actually. Uh, it, was, it was so complimentary, I uh, decided to include it. Hmm. So Bing and I got along fine. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was uh, at a different stage in his life than he was when he was the big popular number one box office star. Right,
1: yeah, him, so him, I, him I and Bob I Hope. I he
0: was like then, but he certainly was professional and darling to work
1: with. Yeah. Now, you you also did several episodes of The Twilight Zone. Um, yeah, did, uh, did,
0: that was also in the 60s. Yeah. Of, I enjoyed that show very much.
1: Did you work? Did you work uh, close with Rod, or did you?
0: Well, not really. I mean, Rod did the introductions and he supervised the scripts in the beginning. But I didn't have any. Uh, you know, I mean, I got the script and I directed the show, and I never he he never said very much except when you know his introductions and
1: so forth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, moving to the well, through the 60s and into early 70s, um you worked on The Virginian.
0: James Dewey was The Virginian. Yeah? Yes. Uh, yeah. It was on for 10 years.
1: Yeah, was that a difficult show because that was a, a longer than normal show, right?
0: Well, it was 2 hours for a while and an hour and a half for a while. But it was all shot on the back lot at Universal or in the on stage. Mhm. Uh the only thing difficult about it was that, you you know, you, uh, you had to finish this uh, hour-and-a-half or two-hour movie in eight or nine days. Right, <laughs> And uh, that was, uh, you know, is, uh, on schedule. But um, I enjoyed doing it very much. I did it the first year it was on, and then they, on and off over the years, they kept calling me back for yeah. different shows. Yeah. And... Uh, Just the other night in New York, uh, a Tyne Daly uh, actress uh, Mm -hmm. is uh, on Broadway now in a play, Masterclass. And she was, I went to see her and I went backstage afterwards because on The Virginian I did years ago, I gave her her first job. Oh, really? And uh, Tyne came in to read for the part, as people did, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, the star was the stars were set. We had at that particular episode there was Burgess Meredith as the father and uh, Brandon DeWilder as the son, and Time Daly was the character that was married to Brandon DeWilder. Well, uh, she told me that she had studied with Sandy Meisner, who was my favorite dramatic teacher, uh, certainly one of the three top ones. Uh, for actors, and uh, uh, but she was the daughter of James Daly, and James Daly had been so nice to be on my first dramatic show that I couldn't not hire his daughter mm-hmm. but uh the show went well, and uh, uh, twenty five years later. Tyne appeared on Broadway in a Revival of Gypsy and won the Tony Award for Best Performance of the Year. And I was at that gathering and she, I said hello to her and she said, you know, I have to tell you something. I, I lied to you. I never studied with Sandy Maestrum, but I heard that you liked actors that did. And I said, well, you didn't get the part because of that. You got the part because your father was so nice to <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other night when I went backstage to see her after her performance in Master Quest, which is brilliant, um, she gave me a big kiss. <laughs>
1: huh. And now, you've done, your career, you've done... Uh, a lot of directors just do drama, or they just do comedy. or But you do comedy, drama? Uh...
0: I do anything that I like the script, or even... <laughs> just because I needed the money. But I <laughs> have done comedy, and I have done drama, and I've done westerns, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the first western I did, I was very unsteady. Uh, I didn't know too much about horses or which side to go on. I was a New York City boy who'd been transferred <laughs> to Hollywood. And I was very lucky that the first star of the, the Zane Gray theater episode that I did was Robert Ryan, movie star. Mm-hmm and he had a scene where he rides in on a horse, and he hit his mark. and I said, gee, you're really remarkable, the way you could do that, and he, I said, you know, this is new to me, and I think the crew senses it, <laughs> and so he said, you know, you should see the films of Anthony Mann, because he was also good with actors, but he also knew his Western stuff. So that weekend, I went to uh, the uh, movies and saw Anthony Mann directed uh, Henry Fonda and Anthony Perkins Mm -hmm. in in, in a Western, and in the picture, Henry Fonda is teaching Tony Perkins how to cock it on the draw as he pulls his gun out. Mm -hmm. Well, the next week, I was doing another Zane Grey, and uh, Eddie Albert was the star. Well, I had worked with Eddie Albert at CBS for 11 weeks, five times a week, and we were friends. And the first shot of the morning had to be uh, a close-up because the fog had not yet lifted for the master shot. We were out on location someplace. And so it was a close, a medium shot of Eddie, and he has, pulls his gun. And it's, he didn't pull it right. I said, no, no, Eddie, you got to cock it on the draw. So authoritatively that the crew, I never was worried about again. They (laughs) accepted being westerns. (laughs) But there were a lot of westerns in those days. Oh,
1: yeah. I got
0: trained at Valley Days. I I guess I worked them all right because I kept getting hired. I really preferred straight dramatic shows.
1: Really? Yeah.
0: And there were a lot of comedies, uh, you know, that were on the air then, and so I got a to those.
1: Well, in '66, you, you did two episodes of Batman, even.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, it was it, it was nice because Bill Dozier, who had been head of CBS and then RKO, was not working, and he created the Batman thing, and mm-hmm. so I got to work for him
1: again. And that was such a huge hit, and everybody everybody wanted to be a guest star on that show.
0: Well, you know, it's funny. That first summer, nobody knew it was going to be a hit. Right. And uh, I uh, did this one with Julie Newmar, where she was the catwoman.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And uh, we had real tigers that were kind of in a cage on stage to, to be part of the, the show. Well, Julie had her period, and that smell the tigers went crazy and they kept roaring <laughs> and so we had to do looping we had to you know, have come in at night and match the picture vocally which we did one night Julie and I
1: <laughs> uh, Jeez. Uh,
0: I asked her to have dinner afterwards and took her to what I thought was the nicest restaurant unfortunately it was too late for dinner that we only could have a drink and I said to her Would you like a drink? And she reached over and took my hand and said, I only drink when I'm going to say yes. That's my
1: Julie Newmar story. Ah, okay. You
0: better shut me up because I can talk on and on.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> what about um, My Three Sons? Now, we've had uh, Don Grady, Stan Livingston, and Barry Livingston as guests on On Screen and Beyond. Uh, now, you've worked with all three of those on My Three Sons, yeah, correct? Yeah,
0: I did uh, You know, My Three Sons. It was funny. I had worked for the Don Federson Company on A Millionaire, in fact. I did 46 episodes right. uh, over the years for, for Federson. And James Kern had directed My Three Sons, and he died. Now, the way they got Frederick Murray and later Brian uh, Keith for uh, Family Affair mm-hmm. was to do all of their scenes within 13 weeks. And then afterwards, they would finish the pictures, the, the shows with somebody standing in for them off camera, and the other actors would get their close-ups and stuff.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, so we got Fred McMurray, in; it was a big hit. Well, James Kern had done the other guy's shots, but he, uh, so I don't know how it worked out, why, but Fred had to do all of his shots. So uh, I uh, directed, uh, I think, Pieces of 13 episodes. Hmm. And I enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed the show, I enjoyed the cast.
1: Right, yeah.
0: And certainly Frederick Murray Yes, yeah. a character, but a marvelous actor.
1: Hmm. Now, one of my all-time favorite TV shows, uh, you directed one of the, sh- the episodes on it, was uh, The Man from UNCLE.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I was very busy in those days, so I only got to, or maybe they didn't like it, I don't know, but I only got to do one UNCLE. But I enjoyed it very much and uh, I had worked with Bob Vaughan years before one of the first shows I did on film which was the West Point Story which ran one season but we actually filmed uh, half the shows at West Point and the other part in Hollywood. so I got to I knew Bob a little bit but he was very studious at that time he was trying for a degree and in between takes, he'd be in his dressing room uh, studying. Mm-hmm. So I never got really to talk to him too much. But we keep rubbing into each other.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, another show back in the 70s uh, that you worked with, it seems like a lot of the, the, the guests who have been on my show have uh, you've worked with, <laughs> and one of them was uh, on. you worked on Switch with Robert Wagner, correct? Yeah. How was it working on that show?
0: Well... I, that show went okay, but uh, Bob just was annoyed with me. Oh, really? Um, I mean, I like working with, uh, you know, Cash, Iron Glass, I remember very much. But one night we were shooting, and we were a little behind schedule, and that's not good. So Bob was keeping us waiting because Natalie Wood, his wife, had come by. Mm-hmm. So I said to Bob, you know, you, you really uh, got to get out of here because you're putting us behind schedule. And uh, he never liked me after that. I was assigned to another show that he did, and then they called and said they, he didn't want me.
1: Oh, huh.
0: And uh, they would pay me off. Well, I got another job and didn't need them to pay me off. But I. I would run into Bob later, and he was always very polite. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it, it, that was why I only did one switch.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the classic TV shows of MASH, you worked on that one.
0: Yeah, I, I, I did MASH for, uh, the first season.
1: Oh, the first but season, okay.
0: I really wasn't happy on that, Uh the, I had been working at Fox uh, on a television series called Anna and the King, which was based on the musical The King and I, mm-hmm. and the movie had been made at Fox, and the costumes and the sets were there for us, and Yul Brenner, who had played in the movie, right, yeah. was the lead with a lovely English lady, uh, Samantha Egger. And I really enjoyed the air-conditioned station this summer and the beautiful costume and I lived very near. When they transferred me to MASH, which was shot out in the hot valley, uh, in the hills, you know, in mm-hmm. Korea, and uh, the, they were in tents, which are hard to light, and uh, it was just a complete contrast. Right. So I wasn't too happy on MASH. And yeah. There were a lot of conflicts at the beginning of the show with Alan and some of the other actors. In fact, Wayne... Uh, Wayne what was his name? Wayne Rogers? Wayne Rogers, um, who I had worked with before, uh, and Alan had such a conflict that Wayne quit the show eventually. Ah, uh, yeah. And Mike Farrell replaced him. Mm-hmm. Which was foolish on Wayne's part as an actor, but he also had another business on the side.
1: Oh, okay. I would
0: work with him on the future, news, and he was well, quite a nice actor.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and now we also had on our show uh, Mary McDonough, who was Aaron Walton, and you directed an episode of The Waltons, right?
0: I did several Waltons, done in the beginning, uh, but somehow when it was in this la- a later run, I think I had worked for Lorimar and some other things uh, that were less successful, like Doc Elliott with Jim Franciscus, uh, which I really enjoyed, but it just didn't make it, and. Uh, so I did, I did the Waltons uh, several t- episodes, and uh, I enjoyed it, you know. Mm-hmm. It was certainly uh, economically good because it kept rerunning and rerunning.
1: Yeah, and, and like I said, we could go on and on and on because you've done almost every show there is. <laughs> well, almost. But uh, one of the shows, which it wasn't a huge hit, but I always got a kick out of it, um, you directed one of the episodes of Sledgehammer.
0: Yeah, I didn't care for Sledgehammer. <laughs> I like working with the leading man.
1: Hmm. Hey, David. Uh, I, I can't pronounce his last name. It's, it begins with R. Roos. Yeah, David Yeah, I can never pronounce his name correctly.
0: But he's he was good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: there was a young writer producer who was not too knowledgeable about television Uh. and I don't know why we just didn't get along so I didn't do but one of those uh, it turned out well. Uh, when I see it, I
1: think it's kind of amusing. But mm-hmm. it was a dumb show. Oh yeah, it was. It very yeah, it definitely was.
0: <laughs> it, it, you know, I'm telling you some of my less successful stories, like yeah, Bob no, Wagner that's... and uh, the producer of that of that show. Yeah, well, I'm Most trying. Most of the time, I got along with everybody. Right. <laughs> uh, one great story that I tell, I think, in my book, uh, it, before I forget, is. On a Virginian I was doing with George C. Scott, mm-hmm. uh, he played a school teacher in the West. And the bad guys had guns, and there was a classroom, and the kids were all there. And George was trying to get through to the bad guys. And uh, he recited uh, the poem by Oscar Wilde about the ballad of Reading Jail thinking that the morale of that uh, the morale of that would get through to them and the dress rehearsal went very well but George was just doing too much and I went over to him and I having been working with Crosby that year if you wanted less you indicated with your hand uh, a little less well I did that to George and he said what kind of direction is that so I I said, well you're a director, George. What would you say? He thought for a moment and he said, I say don't let the children see how upset you are. I said, Perfect, George. Roll it and we did the scene and it was wonderful, you know. Mm-hmm. But he, he never liked me after that.
1: <laughs> yeah, jeez. So,
0: you know, some people loved you and some
1: people didn't. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, people should really pick up your book because the, the, there are so many stories that it, it's it's just amazing that uh, the, the amount of, of information that they can get about early television and the stars you worked with and the, the shows that you worked on, um, it's just... Um,
0: a... As you can hear, I talk a lot. <laughs> but at 90 years old, um, I'm happy that my head is in better shape than a lot
1: of my legs well i'll tell you you, you can remember a lot more things than i can <laughs> that's for sure uh now i, I want to finish up the interview with uh asking you just two questions that take us away from the your work schedule and things like that and more of a personal note um now after directing so many tv shows and everything what would you consider your favorite TV show of all times? Not necessarily ones that you, you worked on, but shows that you just, you know, sit back and watch and enjoy yourself.
0: Well, you know, I Love Lucy, certainly. Oh, yes. One of them. Um, what else did I like? Um, well, I like the dramatic shows. You know, even the ones I worked on, like Naked City, mm-hmm. uh, I really uh, enjoyed those and some of the comedy shows also like I worked on the James Thurber material on My World and Welcome to It
1: yes it, I used to like that show
0: not a big hit but it was charming delightful show yeah yeah, it was a good show and uh, I'm sure there are others over the years I had to think about that see. Yeah. I got a good memory but I'm not remembering everybody else's work
1: right yeah it's hard to, Yeah. what about uh, movies what do you enjoy for movies well
0: what do I like?
1: Yeah, what what movies are your favorite movies?
0: Well, my favorite movies... I just saw one on TCM the other night. It was Camille, directed by George Cukor with Garbo. and
1: hmm Taylor. Yeah.
0: And then Ernst Lubitsch was my favorite director. The Shop Around the Corner, Minachka. You know, it's that period before I started directing, when I was influenced. Unfortunately, Lubitsch died quite young. But I met his daughter... And we had a wonderful romance and are still friends after 50 years. Huh. Uh, Yeah. I, uh, you know, I I still enjoy those kind of films. And they made great movies in the late 30s and 40s.
1: Yeah, yeah. A lot of classic Dramas
0: and so forth. Uh, Ninotchke was also so political. And uh, uh, it's... Subsequently, it was a musical uh, at MGM with Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse, and and the story goes on, but this was at a time when Russia was our enemy, more or less, and uh, the story of an is just charming, and, and Lubitsch's films, I mean... Uh, every one of them still holds up, even the ones in the, the, mm-hmm. the you know, early 30s with Jeanette McDonalds and Chevalier.
1: Oh, yes, yeah. yeah, A lot of classic film there.
0: And uh, my other favorite director of uh, Camille and other pictures was George Cukor. Mm-hmm. And George Cukor had a long career. Uh, he gave Captain Hepburn, a first film, A Bill of Divorcement, in the early 30s. And one night, I was out in Malibu I still lived in California and I was at a party at a playwright friend of mine Jerome Lawrence's house and Cucor was there and then they said he needed a ride into town so I got to drive George Kukor all the way into town and had wonderful talks with him because when Kath Hepburn and Spencer Tracy were having their long love affair uh, Tracy was very Catholic and still married, and uh, they were given a house on George Cucor's property, which was sort of secret, and they had their long, happy relationship there until Tracy died. So there were a lot of things to talk to Cucor about from Lubitsch on, and uh, so I had a wonderful ride into
1: town. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah, well, James, it's been an honor to have you on the show, and I, there's so many other things we could talk about, but unfortunately, we just don't have time. And, but,
0: very nice, thank you. I, I, I guess I can go on talking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you, there's so much in your career that we could talk about that it's you know uh, there's just just not enough time to do it. <laughs> well, it was my pleasure. James Sheldon. What an amazing guest. Uh, Thank him so much for taking the time to talk to us. And we just could have gone on and on because there's so many stories he has, I'm sure. He's such a nice guest, and, and I appreciate him taking the time. If you get a chance, check out his book. You can pick it up at stores and online and everything. It's called Before I Forget, Directing Television, 1948 to 1988. It's an amazing book, and it's a look back at history. TV history. Check it out. Be sure to do that. And be sure to join us and like us on Facebook. And you can email us your suggestions for people you'd like to have as guests on On Screen and Beyond, and we'll try to get them for you. Or if you just want to, you know, send me an email. I'll be checking it out. And you can email us at feedback at com. Anyways, that's about it. That is a wrap for this week. And I'll talk to you once again next week. And I hope you'll all join us when I once again take you on screen and beyond, I'm Brian Zimrack. Take care.